there was a bus accident in Tennessee where there were 30 injured children and um, reportedly over 500 people went to the local hospital where all the children went. And so you can imagine that crowd control can be very, can be very challenging. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am Stephen P. Wood, your host for today's session. I'm a critical care and emergency medicine nurse practitioner and World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and I'm very excited to have you joining us today. In this episode, we're going to review an important topic, pediatric and family considerations in disasters. And I'm honored to have two wonderful guests today, Dr. Joyce Lee and Dr. Sarita Chung, both of whom are pediatric emergency medicine physicians at Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Lee and Dr. Chung. Great. Thanks so much. We're excited to be here. Great, great. So let's get right into it. And uh, let's start just as we might kind of think about the disaster cycle and start with pre-planning, something often overlooked, but probably one of the most important aspects of the disaster cycle is pre-planning. Um, so what are some important pre-planning activities that hospitals and other medical systems can do with regard to, to managing pediatric populations in the setting of disasters? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, really children need to be a consideration right on the front end with any kind of disaster planning. Um, obviously, there are lots of events and situations where children are going to be involved, whether that's a natural disaster or really any other kind of mass casualty event. Um, and we know that children, uh, the longer they're separated, have a longer lasting medical and psychological harm. Um, and often things that come up with children that people don't always think about is just the things that have uh, the general challenges with having children um, as patients, right? So children are often separated either on site or in the process of being evacuated. And so their parents are not going to be with them. Um, and many children obviously are not always going to be able to self-identify who they are. And so really one of the biggest challenges is just identification and the issue of reunification later. They obviously, you know, many, even though there are older children that may have a cell phone or an ID, there are certainly lots of children that don't. And a lot of children only know their parents by mom or dad. They don't necessarily know them as John Smith. Um, and so it can be actually very challenging to think about identifying them and also reunifying them later, probably being the biggest challenge. But then there's also just the idea of keeping them safe while they're in your emergency department or while you're in EMS. Um, if you have a large volume of children, as any person that's ever involved or interacted with children, they don't always follow directions. You can't rely on a two-year-old to necessarily sit or stay exactly where you want them to. So you really need to give them an environment where they can be safe, uh, but also safe in a psychological way as well. I think a, a lot of people would agree that having children in a general emergency department, sometimes uh, they can see things that are a bit traumatic and keeping them in the ED is not necessarily ideal. Um, and so there's, or uh, there's lots of other considerations. And lastly, just the legal consideration, eventually you are gonna wanna reunify them and you wanna make sure you're obviously connecting the right children with the right parents or guardians. So really those are a lot of things that can come up um, even if they're not injured, those are all uh, important things that need to be addressed. And I think people sometimes forget about those. And as you can imagine, this is something you wanna plan ahead of time. Um, even if you have a default plan for like a single unaccompanied child that shows up to your ED, 
Um, you can imagine trying to do that with several children could be really, really challenging. Um, Uvalde, as an example, 19 children between the ages of seven and 10 were shot and several more were brought in for medical evaluation. Um, many uninjured children, and this is obviously very sad to even think about, but they actually reported smearing blood on themselves, specifically with the goal of masking themselves from the gunmen. So imagine that you're having 20, 30 children just piling into your ED um, and trying to not just evaluate and care for them, but making sure that they're safe, making sure that you know who they are, making sure that you're passing them along, or then um, discharging them to the appropriate family member, trying to do all of that in the at the time, obviously, would be extremely challenging. So it really, you want to have those things set up ahead of time. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Dr. Chung, do you want to add anything to that as well? No, so I think for hospitals and, and thinking about this also, I mean, there's anatomical developmental differences in children. And so thinking, um, making sure you have a good pediatric triage plan, that your staff are aware of the different um, vital sign changes uh, d depending on ages. The other thing to think about in your hospitals, thinking about a um, a pediatric decontamination plan. So really trying to keep families together during decontamination, but also with kids, you're going to want to use warmer water and lower pressure to make sure um, that they don't get hypothermic and that there's not any damage to the skin. So there's things to think about. And I would just say one of the other things we're, we're in the planning, but um, drilling these, you won't know what goes wrong until you put a bunch of children in the two, in a disaster drill. And as um, Dr. Lee said, they don't follow directions quite well. Um, and you'll quickly see where are your gaps in your disaster plan with children. So I really would rec recommend whatever plan that you've created to consider drilling it with children. I think, well, I, I work in an adult emergency department, so uh, I can appreciate actually that our adults don't typically follow directions either, but certainly with kids uh, becomes much more important. And, you know, I, I'd be interested to know, and, and I don't know if you know this information or not, I know most of the drills I've been involved in, probably in the 30 years that I've been working clinically, I can't recall really um, children being part of that in any of the um, disaster uh, drills that I've done or, you know, scenarios. Do you know, you know, what's, uh, you know, certainly you both work at, you know, a pediatric center, so I'm sure it's more at the forefront. Do you know, uh, is there any data on that as far as, you know, how often drills involve children? I mean, you may not know that. There may not be publicly available data, but just curious. You know, I, I think the general, um, you know, I think the general consensus is that children are not usually involved in drills and that's where the you know that they don't you don't want to frighten them or you know um you don't want to approach children with those concepts but that actually we found that if you know i think having the right support system for children in drills you will find that it would be very beneficial to have children in drills um some of the support systems include like child life specialist who would be with them most children have been very willing um, to come to these drills because um, they realize that it's helpful, but also uh, we make it fun for the kids. So we've had family unification drills where we've brought our children in and my children keep asking when the next one is because it's so much fun. Like they basically were in a safe area where there was video games and food and books and um you know, uh, everything that they could like want to play with. And so I think um, 
I think they um, they really contribute to the drills. Having families get involved too actually will also help you test your plans because as this as may have been mentioned, families don't actually. Um, it, it, as you said, as adults may not listen or listen to you right away, and they're just really wanting to see their families. Um, and so we've we've done drills, and that's been helpful for our plans. That's great. And uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Lee, please. Oh, I was just going to give another example. Um, uh, so, uh, for example, Texas Children's has done uh, drills with children, and actually, one of the groups they recruited from are actually science clubs. So um, uh, science clubs are really interested in this. They find it really fun um, and you uh, can explain to them, um, uh, especially if they're kind of older, um, a little bit older children, um, kind of what you're doing and what the purpose is. And that's great. And I think, you know, uh, that's an important piece for people of, that are, if they're doing drills to include at least some component. Do you know, are there any, um, printed guidelines on using kids in these settings, or is it mainly just kind of using using some common sense and trying to involve, like you said, um, you know, some experts to help it, design? Actually, the stuff. American Academy of Pediatrics does have a guideline of children and drills, or um, and so uh, that's something we can send to you um, if that's Great. helpful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely would. And we can include it in the show notes for those of you who want to reference that as well. Um, so you mentioned, you know, reunification. And so I think, you know, that's something that's an important piece, uh, much easier, as you mentioned, with adults than it is with kids. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the best practices for hospitals for setting up kind of reunification for separated children? And I know you touched on a few things. Um, you can maybe reiterate some of those and then just talk a little bit about, you know, some of what you've done and what some of the best practices are for that process. Yeah, so we can comment on, on in the United States. So I think um, there's different biometrics that you can consider, but I think there's also just asking questions for the parents and asking those same questions for the children. Um, we, in the United States, what we've found is that um, in a disaster that involves children, for every one children, and this is very informal, but there's eight family members that probably show up to that hospital. And so one thing you want your hospitals to have is a great triage line or a phone line or a way that family members can um, try to call in rather than actually showing up at the hospital. Um, there was a bus accident in Tennessee where there were 30 injured children and um, Reportedly, over 500 people went to the local hospital where all the children went, and so you can imagine that crowd control can be very can be very challenging. Um, one thing that um, the American Academy Pediatrics Family Unification Toolkit um, has recommended is creating these vetting forms or forms that family members can fill out and. Um, have the information of the child. So it could be your name, your nickname, your grade, teacher, birthmark, or piercings. Um, what we found actually most helpful during our drills is if, um, in our vetting forms, is if the family had a pet and what the name of the pet is. Um, not all questions are equal, actually. So one study showed that age, gender, race, and general eye color had a strong um, coordinates between a researcher and a parent, but uh, parents were not great at um, describing hair color, texture or length, or eye color. Um, and so 
Um, one, the other thing is that uh, children, sometimes in these forms, uh, they're asked what were they last wearing, and that actually is found out to be not as useful because during a disaster, they could have changed into hospital gowns or um, they may not be wearing the same clothes that they left the house or um, the family member may not have known what they were wearing beforehand. So I think be careful with the questions that you choose. I think the most common or the most reliable questions are the age, gender, race, and eye color, as well as pet or uh, favorite animal. And then when we think about biometrics, so using photographs have been very helpful. I know this has been done in Israel where they've taken pictures of uh, the victims and the families have come to try to identify them. Um, here, what we've done is uh, we, now that everybody has some type of smartphone, we've asked family members to show pictures um, and see if um, our staff can help provide a match. It's not the only way, but it's a kind it's an adjunct way to help. Um, just as a caveat though, um, would not show all the photographs to parents. We've done studies on our reunification and um, parents have in our drills, even though they know that their child is very safe and is in another room, they said that just the act of looking at children make them very stressed and approximately 10% of our searches, the parents could not identify their own child that's on the screen. So when you think about using photographs, you may need to have a staff person or someone from the hospital that can try to match up photographs or um, do the matching rather than having the parents do it. Another biometric is DNA, and this has been used in um, international settings. Um, and my understanding in the US, this has also been used in settings with disease uh, deceased victims. Um, there has been a rapid DNA um, device that was developed by HHS, but I don't think there's been operational plans at the state and local level to use that. Dr. Lee, did you wanna add anything to that as well? No, I mean, I think everything that uh, that's been a, kind of covers everything as far as reunification. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is, again, just trying to pre-plan for it or at least think about what you want to do as a system. Because again, in the chaos of, you know, for example, the 30 children that come into your, um, uh, come into your ED with 500, you know, family members trying to figure out how you're going to sort it out uh, when you're just trying to provide good medical care and organize everyone is, is probably not the ideal time to decide how you're going to do that. Yeah, and very interesting that you mentioned 10% of family members couldn't identify their child by photo. Um, that's not something I would suspect. I would think photos would be really kind of the premier method, but it seems to make sense that under duress, that might be the case. No, totally. And I think what happens is also that you expect your child to be smiling, but they may have looked differently when they they were getting their photo taken. So there's a lot of um, differences and the families may not be able to pick up. So your child may have been frowning, you know, that's not the usual look for your child in pictures. And so I think there's a lot of variability. No, I would think so. Although you have to see some of my family photos, I think we weren't always smiling necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe our parents would have a hard, easier time. I remember some frowns and some really disgruntled faces. I was never one to to really enjoy getting photographed, and, and still not, still I'm not. Which I'm glad this is a podcast for that reason. Uh, so those are some great, great points, some great tips. 
You also mentioned early on, uh, you know, basically separating the kids out of the emergency department, which I agree with. I think that, you know, we in the setting that I work in, even on a day to day basis, we oftentimes have patients that are violent or psychotic and, you know, having the the kids nearby is always something kind of frightening and we try to minimize that. But in this setting, even more imperative, more important, separating the kids out and having them in a separate area other than the ER. What are some other kind of best practices for you know, um, keeping kids safe and keeping them occupied? Um, you know, what are some things that you do to keep these kids occupied and keep their you know, keep them um, safe in an, in an environment where, you know, they can cooperate with other children. What are some things that you've done or, or that you recommend doing for those kind of issues? Yeah, there are. So the um, American Academy of Pediatrics has a recommendation for um, basically how to set up your ED. Um, and one of the areas they recommend is a pediatric safe area. Um, so obviously the patients that are critically ill or still undergoing care should stay in the ED. Um, but, uh, a lot of times, a lot of these children will hopefully be medically cleared, um, and, or be fairly, or have completed their medical care. Um, but again, unlike adults, you can't just discharge them. You need to hold on to them and, and make sure they're going to the right family member. So, um, one of the areas they recommend is a pediatric safe area to put those unaccompanied minors. Um, and when you're thinking about setting up that area, um, you know, you can think about a few different things. One is that it, that area does not need to be a medical person. So um, a lot of different uh, staff could help with that. It could be someone who's just in the administrative offices, someone who maybe uh, works in the clinics and, and does not specifically do ED care. Um, really, almost anyone, as long as they're kind of a trusted person within your um, institution, um, even if you have a, if you have a volunteer program, volunteers could go to that area as well. Um, and so uh, you can also, and this is something to think about separately about whether or not you want to let spontaneous volunteers participate or not is probably a different kind of legal thing. But if there are vetted volunteers you already have that are willing to help out, they could staff this area as well. And so when you have this area, you want to think about a few different things. Um, one is you want to be able to track them. So you don't want to just dump all these children into this area and kind of hope for the best. Um, so part of it would be thinking about doing some of that intake and gathering some info before they go in there so you have a way to track them. Um, but to have also a clear visual indication of uh, kind of who they are, um, because if uh, I think another thing is, is that if this child kind of gets out of the area, um, for example, if they have a bright colored band, then people will say, oh, I know that kid has a you know purple band on. They're not supposed to be out here in the ED. They should be back in the, the pediatric safe area. Um, and as far as the area itself, um, obviously, you really need things to keep them occupied. You can't, um, again, unlike adults where you can kind of hope they'll kind of um, take care of themselves or entertain themselves, especially younger children are going to need not just someone to supervise and keep them safe, but to keep them occupied. They've also come from a very traumatic situation. So ideally you want to provide some things for comfort for them. Um, so you really need to think about food um, for kids, uh, uh, trying to avoid any potential food allergens. So maybe not having a gigantic container of peanuts in there. Um, things like water, um, but even for younger children, diapers, formula, um, and then hand sanitizer. Um, as far as keeping them occupied, some of the things you can do, you can have older children um, help babysit the younger children and potentially give them directions. Um, but they're also thinking about even getting games and toys um, to help with keeping them occupied. 
Um, we, the New England uh, region, we have um, a mental health, a behavioral health toolkit. And on there, there's an activity resource packet and actually lists a bunch of toys that are basically safe for all ages, regardless of kind of other other issues. And so people can use that as well um, to see kind of an example of different things that they could get. Oh, that'd be great. And that's, yeah, that's another great resource that we'll make sure we include and in, in the show notes, because I think, again, that's something that I don't think most people um, have prepared in their emergency departments or think about. And uh, it'd be an excellent resource uh, for us to pass along for sure. So um, let me then, you know, we'll step back, we'll step out of the hospital here for a little bit and talk about, you know, EMS and even law enforcement. You know, uh, in these situations, are there things that EMS can do that would be particularly helpful downstream in the hospital setting, like bringing, you know, bringing as many belongings as possible or anything else you think that maybe would be helpful for EMS prior to them bringing you know, people in? So there are a few things. This is a great question. Thank you so much. Um, so EMS plays a vital role in this because they're the first touch points on the scene. And so one of the uh, concepts we've asked EMS to consider is really keeping families together. And so um, depending on the event, if it's one where it has been a um, you know, at, at a large gathering with with families and really trying to keep all the families and kids together. If it's actually a school event, um, trying to keep those kids together to go to one place will make reunification a lot easier. And so we recommend if they're all more minor injuries to try to keep those kids together. The other thing to think about for EMS is really having them understand their pediatric triage protocol. So there's not been a study to show which pediatric mass casualty triage is the best, but just really understanding that, um, knowing what it is and making sure that you're able to do triage correctly in kids, given their variability and vital signs, depending on age. And so that's one thing to do. And then the other is EMS, um, will also be responsible sometimes for uh, pediatric decontamination. So similar to hospitals, just be cognizant of uh, making sure that the children um, do not have high pressure that's gonna damage the skin and um, really decrease their chances of having hypothermia. That's great advice for our EMS providers for sure. I think trying to keep families together, trying to keep classmates together seems to make a great deal of sense. I think, you know, even in the adult population, you know, we have difficulty with appropriate triage. Um, oftentimes patients will get triaged appropriately initially, but I think especially in the pediatric population, that second triage or in continuous triage is going to be important. Um, because they can decompensate fairly quickly. I'm not, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously, but I think, you know, that, that seems like it would even be a more important aspect to make sure you have someone frequently reassessing kids to ensure that, you know, they're not decompensating. Absolutely. I think you, you've nailed it. I think that's the, that's the hard part is you can maybe do initial triage, but making sure that you go back and reassess. The other thing is for EMS and, um, you know, for the younger children, you may want to scoop them up earlier because, uh, you know, you don't want a two-year-old on a scene. Even if they they look really well, they will get into danger. And so really the younger kids trying to get them to uh, a place of safety, uh, the sooner the better. 
Great, great. And Dr. Lee, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think it's just, you know, and this has to do probably a little bit outside of the scope of what we're talking about, but it's just coordination of systems as well. Um, and not just within one EMS system or one hospital system, you know, the coordination of um, overall kind of who's going where and how they're being divided up. And, um, you know, it's something that I think is just a greater challenge that every healthcare system, every um, region or locality struggles with. No, I would. Yeah, I think I think that's actually really important. Uh, and we've seen it, you know, here locally, um, where either all the patients go to one facility, which can really create, you know, a stressor um, on one facility, or they get divided up and families get divided in unintentionally. Uh, and that creates a great deal of stress. So that's a really important point, which is, really being thoughtful about where patients are being transported, how they're going to be transported, and how to keep track of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think actually, you know, some lessons can be learned even from, you know, the way that we handle the Boston Marathon or other places that do large marathons that have, you know, kind of tracking, uh, real-time tracking. That might be something, um, you know, to, to think about as well. Um now I'm going to move into a topic none of us really ever have to hope to talk about or deal with. Obviously, if you work in pediatrics, you're going to have to deal with it more often. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, in these cases, there are going to be some children who, you know, um, die, who have a uh, loss of life. And how, you know, this is it obviously has to be incredibly anxious time for families what are some thoughts that you have for dealing with those loss of a child and, and reunification when there's a, a child death? Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about the support. So part of the pre-planning, again, would be thinking about creating a designated psychological team or a psychological support group specifically for healthcare workers. You know, the death of any patient is really difficult, um, but the death of a pediatric patient or a child is just uh, tends to be much more traumatizing and is generally less frequent. So um, I think just compounds that trauma for providers. Um, and so having specific people within your organization, and this is again, EMS or ED, kind of all of those um, regardless of level, who are willing to um, provide that support and come in for a disaster event to support people. And again, um, to really be able to support the staff um, and, to, for, and also to create an environment where the staff feels like um, it's okay to, to express those feelings. Um, and I think even just having the designated team can give some of those, uh, can kind of give permission to people to, to seek out that support. Um, for the parents, there are actually psychological first aid programs that anyone can take um, to help support families during any kind of disaster event. Um, and so, um, again, this could be anyone within your organization who, if they're, uh, if this is something they're interested in, SAMHSA actually provides a free online course and the National Child Traumatic Stress Network also has an online course in this. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I think is that um, just to be thinking about that law enforcement, if it's a, if it's an event that's not caused by a natural disaster, um, law enforcement probably is going to be involved. And so there's going to need to think about that you need to kind of coordinate with them that they might want to collect evidence and do some other things um, while we're while they're, you're trying to process all of this 
And so unfortunately, that's a di also another component to think about um, when something like this happens. I agree with Dr. Lee. I think the loss of a child in any situation is pretty, it's pretty hard and it's, our staff takes it pretty hard. Um, but really, in the setting of disaster where you totally didn't expect your child to be, to pass away, I think definitely um, treating that family or allowing that family space to grieve and uh, grieve with their deceased child. So I think in your plans, really um, mapping out an area where you would have expectant or uh, children who are deceased, where you would put um, those patients and how you would allow um, the families to grieve with them. I think this is where you really want to also in your plan think about spiritual care or, um, you know, different, um, you know, cultural uh, religions may have different ways of grieving and really having um, a spiritual care advisor or, you know, a group um, within your hospital who may be more um, informed about different spiritual care for different communities, be helpful to, to be with them to, um, to help them through that process. Well, thank you for sharing that. That, again, it's something we all hope we never have to experience, but it is the reality of our world, unfortunately, especially here in the United States where you know, we've seen so many um, acts of violence in schools. Um, it's something that uh, many EMS providers and hospitals have had to had to deal with, and many more will. Um, so those are that's incredibly important advice and, and recommendations. Um, believe it or not, we're coming up on our half hour together. Uh, so if you could just, I'll give each of you some time to chat about if you have any other kind of last comments or recommendations or even resources for our listeners, that'd be great. And Dr. Lee, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I think that it's just a matter of planning. Um, and I think that really just considering that children are a very vulnerable population, uh, but also a population that sometimes can, is going to definitely have its own unique challenges. And those are things that you don't want to have to deal with when you have 20 children that are potentially ill rolling through your door. You want to have all of those things set up. Um, and it's also something that families expect. Um, you know, if you want to be able to hopefully have some organization of the chaos that can ensue with lots of family members showing up, they need to see that you are organized and prepared. Um, if you want them to be more of a participant and kind of helping you with what you're trying to do, um, they need to be reassured that you are able and capable and organized for preparing for this kind of situation when it does occur. And it really will just help you in the end. Great advice, Dr. Chung. Yes, I think there are some references and we're happy to send them over. So um, Dr. Lee and I, and I have been referencing the American Academy of Pediatrics Family Reunification Toolkit. There's actually a more detailed plan by the Rapham um, group on a family assistance center. Um, and then for hospitals, uh, the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation Improvement Plan has a disaster checklist, a pediatric disaster checklist. So thinking about uh, different ways to improve pediatric disaster planning within your institution, I think uh, the number one thing really is to consider children um, in the forefront or in the beginning when you start planning. So in your emergency operations plans, 
what have you thought about for children? What have you thought about for children for um, pediatric triage, medical care, reunification, um, decontamination, all those things that you think um, you may have to do in your emergency operation plan, what are what have you thought about for children and children and families? Well, thank you both. This was very informative uh, and there are lots of really great take-home points from this. I think, you know, we I've had many guests on and all of them have been wonderful. This is one of the ones though I can take this information and go back to my emergency department today to, to start, you know, thinking about and initiating these things. I think these are just, you know, these are things where they're very actionable, but, and incredibly important. So I really appreciate your, your expert, you know, uh, advice on all of these topics. So I wanted to thank you for that. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank great. you so much. This is great. Yeah, well, thank you, Dr. Lee, Dr. Chung. Um, this is an area, again, we all hope we never have to endure, but one that we should all be prepared for. And I just want to, again, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. And thank you for uh, sharing that those, we'll be sharing those links as well um, in our post-show notes. Uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. I hope uh, these were this was valuable information for you as well. And on behalf of all of World Extreme Medicine, uh, we thank you all. Stay safe, and we will see you next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.